So the passage that we're looking at is 1 Chronicles chapter 17. 1 Chronicles chapter 17, looking at the Davidic covenant. But just a couple of things from our morning session I want to pick up, uh, based on a couple of uh, comments. One is people asked about the what I read about the Iranian pastor, and that was from the Open Doors website. So if you go to the Open Doors website, um, it has some testimonies of the persecuted church that was on the website, but it also has a, a series, oh, it's, it's very moving, a series of pictures of Iranian pastors who are currently in prison, and you can pray for them. And it gives their name when they're in prison, when they're coming up for trial and so forth. So uh, open doors. So that's the first thing. Uh, second thing I want to mention is a couple of you asked about it. The term for helper, is that the same term that's used in Genesis with Eve? And the answer is yes. Uh, Eve is described as the helper. The term azer is most commonly used of a helper in military battles. No surprise with the 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Helper in military battles, and it is also used of God helping Israel. Again, that was exactly the theology that's picking up in that passage. And so sometimes scholars say, well, why do, does God have helper used? If you look at some of the debates about the role of men and women, often you know, the complementarians say, look, the helper, she's to help Adam, Adam's not to help her, that shows the complementarian affirms that. The egalitarians say, look, um, uh, you know, Adam needs help. <laughs> Can I have an amen to that? No. <laughs> uh, what they don't do is ask, why on earth do you have a military term being used of Eve when they're in the Garden of Eden in paradise? And I think it is because the ultimate enemy is coming. The ultimate enemy, the serpent disguised as a serpent, is coming and two are better than one. And so they were meant to, she was meant to help him, and if you look at where helper comes... It is right after the command is given. It, it is not coming after be fruitful and multiply. It's coming after the command not to eat from the fruit. And I think she's meant to help him keep the command of God. And that also underscores her offense because instead of being at, she should have, when the serpent came to her and said, did God really say, she should have said God's word said and then said, you can go to hell. Right? That's, that's how she would have helped Adam. But instead, she starts to be dialogue with the serpent, with the enemy. And therefore, as part of the judgment, God's going to set up hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And some of that hostility we're seeing being played out in the story of David. Because there is an over, this narrative that runs through the scripture is at a key moments within the redemptive story when God is at work, that the enemy is also at work. You could think about when they're in, the, um, in Egypt and they are multiplying, fulfillment of the creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply, and who turns up to try and stop them from multiplying? Pharaoh, 
And so there's a lots of plays there in the narrative. And I think here we see the same thing with the Philistines, the, which are the enemies, right? It doesn't mean every Philistine is because nations can be incorporated into Judah. But at the same time, there is a conflict. And so that Asa language in the, is picking up some of these same themes as we run through. And then just the third thing to mention, um, someone pointed this out, that in chapter 12, where... Um, Chapter 12, where it says, verse 18, Peace to you, peace to him who helps you. Indeed, your God helps you. Someone pointed out that the NIV has success. I, I rest my case. It's shalom, peace. Success. Notice also that in the previous verse... Verse 17, David went out to meet them and said, if you have come peacefully, in peace, there you have the term, it is, are you going to be my enemy or have you come to help me? Um, so success is not the right word to use there. But it does fit our successful theology. Um, I won't go into it now, but another great example is Deuteronomy 28 where it says that the Lord will bless you and prosper you. One of the blessings that we use a lot, if you Google Deuteronomy 28, you'll find lots of sermons on it. The word prosperity is not even used there. It is the verb to be left over. God will cause there to be left over for you for good. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, verses 11 and 12, the word prosperity, again, I've traced all the history of translations, the word prosperity is not used. God will cause there to be left over for you for good. What is the language of left over? Lots of cases where it's used. A good example in Ruth is when she's gleaning, she's poor, there's left over for Naomi. Deuteronomy 15 says, God's blessing you so that you can share with the poor and the needy in your midst. That's the theology of Deuteronomy, so that you can share with the poor and needy in your midst. What do we do? We appropriate the verses for individual prosperity, and we forget the, for the, actually it's um, tovah, for the common good. We forget the common good aspect, and we personalize it, um, the blessing is given in terms of your crops and in all your... You can't, you can't just store up all this stuff. It's got to be used. That's the point of it. So leaving that aside, now we're picking up. Um, uh, let me highlight a couple of things. In uh, chapter 13 to 16, and then really I'm focusing on 1 Chronicles chapter 17. 1 Chronicles chapter 17. Uh, first of all, there's a couple of places here where we have the gathered assembly. Uh, 1 Chronicles 13, verse 2, and there are several places in these chapters. I simply just want to mention here that the term for assembly is kahal in Hebrew, um, and it is translated as ecclesia in the Greek. Uh, and this is several places in the Old Testament as well. Um, some, some of the times it's translated as synagogue, where you get synagogue. Um, but as we start to think about David, he's bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and it's going to lead in a time of worship. The assembly, the ecclesia, is 
At the center is the presence of God. The gathered assembly with God in their midst. That's, that's this gathered community. We've already seen that the gathered community is also multi-ethnic. It's not simply pure ethnic Israel. The stranger and the sojourner was, were always welcome. They were always part of Israel. So the gathered assembly... And I just want to mention that Gordon Fee talks about the language of how what it, we've translated the word church and associated church with building instead of with the gathered community. Gordon Fee, Jesus the Lord according to Paul the Apostle, a concise introduction, fabulous little book. And this is what he says. He said he notes that Ecclesia is used in terms of this gathering. It's appropriate term for Paul because it's picking up the Old Testament, gathered Israel. But he said rather than it being a community of believers for worship, we have often translated it as going to church, to a building. And so um, that is on page 10. He's got a great section on this as well as a lot of other key terms used of Jesus that pick up Old Testament. So uh, they are the gathered community. And I also just want to mention that at the center of the gathered community is the presence of God. At the center of the gathered community is the presence of God. Uh, John uh, Jack Davis has written a book, Worship and the Reality of God, an Evangelical Theology of Real Presence. So John Jefferson Davis, or he teaches at Gordon-Conwell, Worship, and the reality of God, an evangelical theology of real presence. And he talks about, he went traveling around the U.S. and said, the actual presence, the real presence of God seems to be missing in a lot of churches. And he says, raises the question after visiting a church with comfortable theater-style seating, large TV monitors, whether the church's attempt to be culturally relevant has moved into mere entertainment. And he says that, Alien, non-biblical ontologies are at work to wash out the churchgoer's consciousness of God even before worship begins. And so here, the center of worship is the presence, and it's the real presence. And if you're not too sure if God really is present, see what happened to Uzzah, right? So we know who's in our midst, in light of God's holiness. Then in chapter 16, you have this wonderful um, time of praise and thanksgiving. And 1 Chronicles 16, there are three psalms that are brought together. Psalm 96, Psalm 105, and Psalm 106. Portions of those. Psalm 96, Psalm 105, and Psalm 106. I want to mention this because they are moving into Jerusalem with the presence of God and they are worshipping God and they are using the Psalms as the centerpiece of their worship. Right? They're using the Psalms. A couple of scholars have looked at, compare the Psalms, and, and, note, and this is important because it is showing the role of the Psalter within the worship of Israel. Beautiful Psalm that is now bringing these together. And just a couple of comments here. Uh, there is also a book by Daniel Block 
called For the Glory of God. I would recommend this. He is looking at worship in the Old Testament for the glory of God. And one of the things that he laments is the lack of rich theological language in our worship. And of course, we've heard this before, right? Um, David Wells, many years ago, wrote on this. And this is what Bloch says in his book on page 236. Too often in worship wars, pragmatism, that is, what do people want, and personal taste, what do people like, rather than biblical perspectives or theology drive the discussion. And music in worship is often designed to satisfy those whose worship is unacceptable to God. And he says, to achieve the highest administrative goal that people will return next Sunday, the music must create a certain mood, the service must be engaged in attendees with this performance or con um, concert. And he notes that often our worship songs, we sing about our love for God rather than God's love for us. So, a couple of quick comments here. One is... Um, I think what we need to do is with contemporary music is distinguish what is narrative testimony in song and what is designed for corporate worship. For example, the Mercy Me song, I Can Only Imagine. If you've seen the movie, and yet beautiful, beautiful song, right? That has a place as testimony, but it's not the place for worship. We don't all sing, I can only imagine, whatever, right? You see the difference there? And so what is also interesting within 1 Chronicles 16 and elsewhere in the book of Chronicles is that we have Levites are the worship leaders. Levites are also the ones who teach Torah. And Asaph, one of the key people, is the one who's written the hymns. In Chronicles, uh, we have a number of psalms attributed to Asaph. He's going to be key during this time. Psalm 50, 73 to 83. He's the head musician, but he's also a Levite trained in the Word of God. So I would encourage us as we're thinking about worship and reading Daniel Bach's book, encourage us to be thinking about who are those who are leading in worship and making sure that they are Levitical trained in terms of having good theology. And then the, some of the songs, I think of another one, um, Lauren Daigle, Here's My Heart, Lord. Beautiful, beautiful song. Again, that's wonderful for testimony, but it may not be the right song for worship in terms of the content. You see the difference there? So I just want to mention that to you. Um, and then one other quick comment about um, worship leaders. Uh, later on, uh, David is, there are chapters to do with uh, chapter 24, the duties of the Levites, chapter 25, the musicians. Here's what's really interesting. David's counselors are those who are chosen, and his military men are the ones who are chosen, who have had a, who've been faithful to him. But the Levites are the musicians. And how do you get to play your musical instruments in worship? By lot. Think about this for a moment. This means one 
family doesn't dominate. And in fact, the chapter that talks about Lot says it is from the smallest to the greatest. That's the point of it, that there's going to be some kind of equity in terms of who gets to play their musical. They're all skilled, so it's not the skill level. But it is to say who gets to play, it is by lots, so that you rotate one month on, another month someone else comes on, another month. So I put that out there as an interesting thought that may solve a few of your problems. <laughs> you can quote me, okay? <laughs> so, um, yeah. As I said, his leaders, he doesn't do that. I know I'm resonating here. I can feel it. You've had worship <laughs> issues. I know when I was growing up in my church, we had one family that had like five daughters, and they were always, you know, they were always um, singing, and I was part of worship as well for a number of times. So worship is absolutely central. It is up there with teaching of the Torah. It's not secondary. It's absolutely central. And that's why the content of worship, because it's teaching, it's rehearsing the stories, and it's a way people remember it. So, And David gives great care to who his musicians are. All right, one, now I want to shift to 1 Chronicles um, chapter 17. So this is the formal Davidic covenant. We have a number of places in the Old Testament where you have the Davidic covenant that is given in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and there are several Psalms that talk about the Davidic covenant. The term covenant is not used, but it is used outside the passages to confirm that this is a covenant. So uh, David, of course, he's brought the ark into Jerusalem, and now he says, I've been dwelling in, um, I've got my house, God has been dwelling in a tent, and now it's time for me to build the house of God. Verse 6, in all the place, and God responds, verse 4, and says, go tell David my servant, thus says the Lord, you shall not build a house for me to dwell in, for I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent, the movement of God tabernacling in all the places where I have walked with Israel. That verb walked is in the hispael of the verb halak in Hebrew, to walk. It's used when God was walking in the garden, roaming around. And he said, I was been walking with my people. And he said... Did I ever ask you to build a house? So Nathan is to say to David, you shall say, I took her from being the pastor, I've been with you. And he's basically going to say to him, you're not the one to build the temple. Okay? There are two passages where elsewhere it is said, chapter 22, verse 8, where he is told that the reason he can't build the temple is he has shed much blood and has waged great wars. That's also in chapter 28, verse 3. So here, God says, I didn't ask you to build it. Later, he says on two occasions that he has shed much blood and he has had many wars. So the question is, what is this referring to and why do his military battles preclude him from building the temple? It's been a debated issue and one scholar has written on it. This is very interesting. I'm just going to give you a two-minute summary. 
shedding blood 33 times in the Old Testament, not including the two references in Chronicles. It usually refers to civilian, one civilian killing another. Not usually, except for two occasions where it's used of the nations wanting to kill God's people. Otherwise, it is usually of murder. So it's a, it's a pretty intensive term that's being used here. And yet the passages indicate that here he's been killing people, but it is in warfare and the language of shedding blood is not normally used in warfare. So the question is, what is going on here? And is So then scholars have said, look, it doesn't seem to be negative because God is the one who's been giving him victory. Okay. Um, Numbers chapter 35 talks about if someone murders someone else and sheds blood, it pollutes the land. It pollutes the land and the only way a murderer can decontaminate the land is through his own death. Okay. Well, David is not a murderer because this is military. But if you also go into warfare and you, you are classified as unclean and you have to go through a ritual of seven-day ritual before you can be incorporated back into the camp because you have become defiled by in being incorporated with touching blood and death, corpse. And so what scholars have said, what one particular scholar, and I can't remember his name, but has said is that David, through his wars, not negative about his wars because they were God's wars, but he cannot build the temple because he has become kind of unclean, if you like. And it, so the passage in 22 says that before me, God's presence and so it is perhaps this numbers ritual in the background that precludes him from building the temple. And so, of course, Solomon, whose name means peace, this is a time of ending of warfare, and so it's appropriate for building the temple. So as we think about the promises, I want to just mention two things, two parts. There are promises to do with David and his immediate context, and then there are promises about something that is coming up further away, all right? So two things. There are promises to do with David initially, and then promises concerning his son. So the promises concerning David, he says, verse 8, I have been with you wherever you have gone. That's picking up what we looked at earlier, that God's presence with him, he's been helping him. Doesn't matter where he is, God's been with him. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make your name great. I'm reading verse 8, like the names of the great ones who are in the earth. Verse 9, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I'm going so that they won't have to move again. Verse 10, I will subdue all your enemies. The term subdue there is not used in Kings, in the Samuel passage. 
But it is picking up Genesis 1.28 where you are to subdue the earth. And it's picking up the conquest of the land language, suggesting that somehow in David there is a fulfillment of the creation mandate. Not only be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, but subdue it. So that's being picked up here. But I want to focus on what's coming next. Verse 10, moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. Verse 11, when your days are fulfilled. First of all, fulfillment language here suggests a time and a place and a purpose. Right? God has a plan with David. This gets picked up in Acts when he had fulfilled the purpose of God in his generation. So when your days are fulfilled and you go to be with your forefathers, I will set up or establish one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. So first thing here, when your days are fulfilled, I will cause to arise or establish... One of your descendants, the term is your seed. I will establish your seed after you. Seed language here, it also turns up in Genesis to do with promises. The term zerah, seed, over 50 times in Genesis. Seed language here, this is why the genealogies are given in both Genesis and Chronicles. Because the promise is given to a genealogical line and a seed, therefore you want to know who the seed is. So that's why the chronicler has this theology in view when he's writing the genealogies. And we're going to see there's one son in particular that only the chronicler writes about. And it's absolutely critical for the continuation of the genealogical line. So one of your seed. And then the chronicler puts one of your sons. So that's unique to chronicles. And then he says, I will establish his kingdom. So 2 Samuel 7 says a son will come forth from his own body or his own loins. That was said in Genesis 15 of Abraham. One from your own loins will come forth. But I want you to also see what happens next. He shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son. I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. Verse 14, I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established. All right, a couple of things. First thing, no conditions here. Mosaic covenant, if you obey me, and if you keep my commandments, then here's, here's my promises. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. If you do this, then I'm going to bless you. And here are my promises. There are no conditions with this covenant. 
We should be hearing a big amen right now because what happens afterwards with David? Murder, adultery, two breaches of the Mosaic Covenant and both of those sins are worthy of death. If this was a conditional covenant, David would not meet the conditions. But it is given as a promise in the same way as the promise is given to Abraham. Second thing to notice here is he shall build for me a house. So he's going to build a temple. See that? The term house, there's a play on it. It's the same word for dynasty. I will establish his throne forever. And then look at verse 14. I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom. If you look at the reference in Samuel, it says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now it is the kingdom of God. And in Chronicles, it is the only place where you have the kingdom of the Lord. And in fact, five times it is mentioned in Chronicles. Over God's kingdom. And what else do we notice here? And I will settle him, or cause him to stand in my house. What's the house? temple. Notice the priestly overtones here. The king, why would he be settled in the temple? That's the priest role, not the king. So remember we talked about the priestly role here of the king and it's also embedded in this promise here. So we have the promise of There's going to be a seed that's coming, someone from your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. We've got the building of the house, throne. I'm not going to take my loving kindness away. That's another key theme. Remember, God took it away from Saul. And I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom, and his throne shall be established forever. So what happens, I'm going to pick up what David's response in a moment. But let's look at the big picture of where this is headed. So what happens is when Solomon becomes king, he quotes these promises. Of course, he builds the temple. He's the temple building king. And he says that you have fulfilled what you've promised. I have risen today, I will cause your seed to arise. I have, same verb used, I have risen in place of my father, David. He builds the temple. And he prays that God might confirm the word given to David. But God turns up on two occasions to Solomon in a dream. 
Dreams shouldn't surprise us. Jesus is still doing it now. He turns up on two occasions and he says to him, if you obey my commandments and keep all my statutes, then I will give you the promises that were given to David. So it is given unconditionally to David, but conditionally to the heir of the promises. Why is it conditional to the heir of the promises? Because the king is ruling over the kingdom of God. And you can't have an idolatrous king ruling on the throne forever over the kingdom of God. So the king has got to fulfill the requirements of the law. You know what happens to Solomon. Starts well. Then we have him marrying 700 wives. Lots of political... We talk about networking today. Like, you know, that's networking in a big time. Oh, you want to be in relationship with Egypt? Just marry... Pharaoh's daughter, it's kind of unheard of in the ancient world, actually, that he's marrying Pharaoh's daughter. So he's got all their, they're all foreigners because he's, he's political networking. When we come to Solomon, we'll look at him, I think the fame starts to get to him. Pride. But he starts to worship idols, and so God tears the kingdom away from him. 930 BC, tears the kingdom away from him. That's not the everlasting kingdom because the chronicler sees who's in the kingdom. All Israel, all the tribes. Ten tribes go north. 930, Rehoboam, his son, becomes king. Doesn't do so well. He sets up cult prostitutes at the temple. Male cult prostitutes. You're having problems with crops, have sex with the temple prostitute to kind of enact. May have been homosexuality. God's going to bring judgment against him. What happens with a king in Chronicles is whether you listen to a word of rebuke or not from a prophet. It's decisive. We're going to, we'll pick that up in the story that's coming up. Whether we listen to those whom God has given us for either word of rebuke or encouragement is a key factor in the success or not of a king. So we go through the story of the kings and we have in the southern kingdom some great kings like King Hezekiah and King Josiah. But we're also going to see that every king fails in some way. Every king going to look at King Jehoshaphat, one of our great, great kings. But at the end, he has an alliance with the northern king and God brings judgment and he gets a rebuke. King Hezekiah, one of our great reforming kings, lovely king. He gets a bit prideful at the end of his life and he doesn't give thanks to God. He shows some of his treasures to the king of Babylon. Josiah, one of our great kings, he gets killed by Pharaoh Necho for not listening to the word of God through Pharaoh. 
And then we come to our last few kings. After the death of Josiah in 609, and that takes you to the end of Chronicles, chapter 36. And we find out that the whole people have been unfaithful to the Lord. And our last king, Zedekiah, who doesn't humble himself, chapter 36 our last king Zedekiah, Babylonians come against Jerusalem. God announces judgment against him. Babylonians come against the city, destroy Jerusalem, 586, and they slaughter Zedekiah's 70 sons. He didn't humble himself before the Lord. They slaughter his 70 sons, and then they gouge out his own eyes and they bring him to Babylon. And it looks like the promises God made to David are at an end. They go into exile, 586, they come back in 539 under the leadership Sheshbazar and then Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel's from the line of Judah. They come back. They rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel is being painted as a second Solomon figure. Lots of parallels between Zerubbabel and Solomon, including even when they start rebuilding the temple and some of the language used. They start rebuilding the temple. But the question is, what happens to the line of Judah if the 70 sons of the last king have been killed? The genealogies. Chronicles genealogies records in chapter 3 the line of Judah and the second last king, Jehoiachin. I haven't got my timeline behind me, but the second last king, Jehoiachin, gets brought to Babylon in 597. The last king, that's actually his uncle, not his son. Jehoiachin is in Babylon for 37 years. And when he is in Babylon, he has sons. And you know the only place where his sons are mentioned? Chronicles. Mentions in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, seven sons. Not mentioned elsewhere. Why do you think the chronicler is keen to mention the sons? Because the promise is given, he's the only one that adds it to his sons. There is an inscription that was found in Babylon that mentions oil being given to five sons of Zedekiah. Zedekiah has a son, and his grand, sorry, 
Jehoiachin has a son, and his grandson is Zerubbabel. And Matthew's genealogy picks up the chronicler and mentions Zerubbabel through Jehoiachin. Why do you think Matthew's gospel starts with a genealogy? To show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to David. But the promise was made to David that God would establish his everlasting kingdom. And of course, Jesus is going to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. That means the king is there. Let me just grab a... Proclaims the kingdom when he comes into Jerusalem. Hosanna, son of David, Matthew's genealogy, son of David, son of Abraham. But the problem is the king dies. And the question is, where is the everlasting kingdom that was promised? But three days later, God raised him up. 1 Chronicles 17, I will raise up your seed after you. Jeremiah is going to say in chapter 33 that God will raise up a righteous Davidic king. Because there is no righteous king in the Old Testament, not one. It is never said that a king is tzaddik, righteous. Zechariah sees a king is coming, tzaddik, righteous, humble, and mounted on a donkey. No horses. The battle's not military. Humble and mounted on a donkey. The king is going to get killed because... The purpose of God included the cross. And the narrative at the center is the cross, a crucified king, where we have hints of that in the life of David. David was the one that wrote that you have cast lots for my clothing. Now it's being cited by the Messiah. But he not only dies, but three days later, he's raised up. God had promised David, when your days are complete, I will raise up your seed, one of your sons. The Hebrew verb there is kum in Hebrew. The same verb when Solomon says, I have risen in place of my father. But it is not the regular form. It is what we call the hyphial causative. I will cause your seed to arise. The Greek translation, anistame, to resurrect. I will resurrect your seed after you. 
And in fact, David said in his prayer that follows, who am I that you have called me? And he said, you have shown me things that are from afar, rachok, a long distance. It's usually long distance away in the past. You have shown me something that is going to happen a long distance ahead in the future. And so in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 13, they start to say this Jesus who was put to death, but God raised him up. And we are all witnesses. He has fulfilled his promise of old. In other words, in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 13, it is the fulfillment of the whole narrative of kingship as the Messiah is raised up, but his resurrection and his reigning as king goes through the cross. And therefore, it provides the model of kingship, servant kingship, laying down his life, which we've been talking about. So David also is going to quote some of the Psalms. Um, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay, anticipating that he's talking about the resurrection of the Messiah. So wonderful what God has given him and the way he's going to fulfill it. God is doing it because Jesus is the only righteous Davidic king. And then two quick, one chronicle 17, then David says, who am I? Beautiful, beautiful response of David. And what I love about this is when David gets these promises and he is overwhelmed with the grace and mercy of God. It says he went in and sat down. If you look at the language used, it's probably a reference to into the tent before the Ark of the Covenant. Is that a beautiful picture? God's made promises and he sits down before the Lord and says, who am I? And so that language then of the who am I is then last chapter, chapter 29 of his life picks up again, chapter 29, at the end of his life, verse 14, he says, who am I and who are my people at the end of his life? I think David is shaped by who the Lord is and his grace and mercy in his life. And what he does at the end is give everything over to the building of the temple. Generously. If you read through that beautiful passage, the language of generosity, that the leader is the one who is generous. That's a, another theme that runs through Chronicles. The king gives first. He leads in generosity. He gives of his treasures, terms used of precious things that he's giving, and I think he's giving to the kingdom of God for the next generation. Because I think David never forgot the call of God on his life. He never forgot that God used an unexpected person 
in unexpected circumstances. So here we also have someone who ends up wealthy at the end of his life. So we don't want to be just, we're not just talking about the vow of poverty when we talk about taking up our cross. We are talking about the commitment to give everything to the Lord and his call. Uh, I don't know if you've read the book Gospel Patrons. Anyone read the book Gospel Patrons? Uh, it's a new book out. I uh, would encourage you to read it. It's called Gospel Patrons. And uh, it's a short, you can read it within a couple of hours. But a lovely book. Uh, and the author looks at three key people within church history. William Tyndale, in terms of publishing first English Bibles. And then um, Whitfield. And then um, Newton, with all his hymns. And what he does is he traces the people who gave to their ministry to enable it to take place. Beautiful, beautiful book. Quick read. These people who um, risked everything to be, I think Massoon is the first guy and Lady Huntington is the second one. And then Thornton, who turns up in the Wilberforce era, who... And they just commit their finances and their resources. Thornton was one of the wealthiest in England at the time. And um, paying for not only all the... We wouldn't have had all the hymns without a Thornton. We probably wouldn't have had the English Bible without the... I think it's Mahoon or Masoon, something like that. I haven't got it in front of me. We wouldn't have had the English Bible without his money to pay for it. Patrons. And... Um, uh, Thornton paid for pastors in London. A whole lot of them. He wanted, why? Because he cared about the gospel and he cared about good. So he paid for them <laughs> to get the right people in the right spot so that the word of God would go out. And I see with the life of David, here he ends. He's not grabbing hold of the treasures, but it's all given freely. And he says, we are strangers and exiles. And here he is in the Jerusalem. He's got it all. He's the king. And he acknowledges that his citizenship is somewhere else. So encourage you as you read through David, the covenant, of course, sets the scene for the whole narrative, but beautiful in terms of his devotion to the Lord. Uh, lots of mishaps along the way, no doubt. But there's a deep love for the Lord. And I want to finish well like he did. Right, we have time for questions. Yes. Yeah. Seventeen thirteen. Thanks, Scott. I'm wondering if the word there is Hesed. It is. Okay. Thanks. It is. So, um, and and I think. Chesed here, this loving kindness or covenant, right, loyalty, is what happens in the southern kingdom is even, why is it that the kingdom lasts so long even when you've got like Manasseh? If you look at the judgment in the northern kingdom and you compare it to the southern kingdom, they are treated differently. And I think God is disciplining the southern kingdom, but he's not bringing it to an end, even though the kings are worthy of death because of his faithfulness to bring about his promise. Yep. 
thank you for the conversation about bloodshed. Yep. Um, maybe I missed something, but uh, wouldn't it be just a simpler explanation to talk about Uriah? Uh, that's coming later in the narrative. It's not mentioned in Chronicles, but if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, is where the promise is given, and then so yeah, so some so that is coming that is coming later. It's because he's saying the built temple buildings narrative is early, at least when you look at in Samuel. So it would make it would make sense, but um, uh, I, I could tell you the name of the article. Great article on it that surveyed it, um, and I think I think he's right with what he's done, looking at the fact that it is usually murder. But that's coming. That is coming later. So that's the, it, certainly it's going to identify who he is later, but not at this point. If you look at 2 Samuel 7, we don't have it here because it's not mentioned. Uriah is not mentioned in this narrative. But good question. Um, you were talking about music earlier on. Yeah. And the music that is uh, testimonial or proclamatory versus that which is kind of I thou address yeah. in music. And uh, it seems to me that that's always been the case because you have a mighty fortresses are God aboard, never failing. And it's yeah. talking about God. It seems that people could be singing that at the mall, you know, that's and versus, um, and, and I just bring this up because there's also um, a lot of, I think, really good music that have, that is written contemporarily yeah. that really does express that I, thou um, relationship very well. Yeah. We adore thee, you know, and so yeah. on. And, um, uh, I just I just wanted to check and make sure you're not seeing that as something that's endemic to contemporary music, but yeah. it's something that's been going on forever. Yeah, so I think, I do think it's worth reading the Daniel Block book because, uh, you know, I know David Wells has written on it as well. He's at Gordon-Conwell and um, Daniel Block has done an extensive study of worship in the Old Testament. So I think he's... Uh, and he he does talk about like when it says I love you Lord I think about that I I love you Lord and I, you know he says look it does cause me to stop and think and say is worship about my love for him or is it actually about his love for me right and I. I and so I think it, it, it's a good book to read to cause us to kind of be more reflect, reflexive, on, reflective on it. And, but what you tend to hear is down on contemporary music and up with the hymns kind of thing, right? That's, and my, as I've thought about it further, I think there is a place for Christian music at home like Mercy Me or Lauren Daigle and so forth. And I'm thrilled if my boys are listening to some of that rather than all the other trashy stuff out there, right? Thrilled. But the question is, what is the role of corporate worship? And what is? And I think we have to be intentional about and careful about what we use for corporate worship. So that's... And so therefore, I think, you know, as I said, often the conversation is, and, and Daniel Block is a little bit negative in places with it, um, but I think it's a thoughtful read to, to really kind of re-examine it. And the fact that the Levites are trained in Torah is also interesting. I mean, they're theologically trained. Um, so that, that's an important piece because we, we're retelling our stories through... It's not just a... It's, it, was, it was so central 
It wasn't, you know, we elevate the role of preaching, which I'm all for and everything else, but worship was actually the way the word was being communicated and the truths of scripture, your loving kindness is everlasting. You know, the, the truths of scripture were being communicated. The pulpit, the preaching piece tends to come later. We elevate the role of the preaching and yet worship is really more important. What are people going home when they're, hmm, hmm, you know, they're singing? How can we ensure that what they're singing is going to build them up with rich theology? So. Hi. Hi. Uh, you've mentioned multiple times the chronicler seems to be gratuitously highlighting the diversity in the Israelites. Yeah. Um, and you, you also seem to be indicating that there's some purpose that he's doing that in the in the context of the socio-political situation at the time, but I guess I missed exactly yeah. what that is. Yeah, so I think uh, Scott Hahn's work has done a lot, The Kingdom as Liturgical Empire, is um, so the fact that he's taking it back to the Genesis narrative, I think is pointing out that the fulfillment of the purpose of creation is being fulfilled in Judah, right, in the Judah. Judah is at the center, the tribe of Levi as well, but Judah's at the center, and the psalm that we didn't read through is, your name is proclaimed among the nations. There's a theme of the nations else, because they are living under the Persian Empire, and the theology is not, let's kind of retreat and try and regroup, the theology is, no, God's name is to be pro proclaimed among the nations, and now they're in a new opportunity to do that. And so I think the chronicler is actually giving them a missional vision. That's and that's it, both. That's exactly my point. It is both because at the same time, not all the nations want to hear so the nations are also rising up against God's anointed and his people. And I think that's the testimony of where we are now, right? That we are, in terms of mission, we are to be a blessing to the nations. But the stories I told you with Iran, they're in conflict with the nations. So we've got a whole, and it's both end. And I think that's the tension that we live in. I think in the church, in our context, we have focused on being a blessing to the nations. And I think... My own work being in Chronicles has seen, yeah, there's a, there's a conflict here. The nations arise against God's people, and that's part of that narrative that we haven't... That's the cost piece, right? There's a narrative there that we haven't fully embraced, and I think that's important as well. So it is a tension between both. 